Please turn with me to the words that we read in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 9. Matthew's Gospel in chapter 9 and reading again at verse 27. We read, and as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. I'm sure that uh, many of you have seen the film The Great Escape uh, that's based on the true story of British and American prisoners escaping from a German prisoner of war camp. And one of the characters in the film, Colin Blythe, is going progressively blind and it looks likely that he won't be able to make the escape, that he'll be more of a hindrance than a help in the operation. However, an American pilot, Bob Hanley, takes uh, Colin under his wing and they manage to break out. They steal a plane which is subsequently shot down. The last scene with Colin has him scrambling out of the plane and running toward a group of German soldiers whom he hasn't seen. This blind man cuts a very helpless figure. In one of his books, R.C. Sproul writes, The blind man gropes in the darkness. He is always at risk of bumping into someone or something, of tripping and falling, or of getting lost. His life is in jeopardy with every step that he takes. Well, today we're continuing our studies in Matthew chapters 8 to 10, and we're looking at Jesus' encounter with these two blind men. And we're going to be looking at these verses under two headings. The cry and then the cure. The cry and the cure. First we have the cry. Look at verse 27. Here Matthew focuses on the cry that Jesus heard. At the beginning of verse 27 we're given the context. We can start by noting where Jesus has been. He has been teaching around his hometown of Capernaum. And while there he had been interrupted by a local synagogue leader, ruler called Jairus. This man had come up to Jesus fallen on his knees before him and implored him with the words, my little daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. Jesus had got up and he had followed him and while he was walking, a woman with a discharge of blood had grabbed hold of the the fringe of his garment, believing that that would somehow cure her. Jesus had turned around and spoken to the woman and had assured her that she could take heart, telling her that her faith had made her well. And after speaking to the woman, Jesus had gone on to the synagogue ruler's house. Upon arriving at the house, he had gone in, taken the girl by the hand, and raised her up. He had raised her from her bed, but also, and more importantly, he had raised her from the dead. And now Matthew tells us in verse 27 that Jesus passed on from there. He is not content to remain in this place where he had performed this miracle. He is not content to spend days and weeks in an environment where he will be expected to perform miracle after miracle and then explain why he's doing it, how he's doing it, uh, what reason he's giving for doing it. He sees the need to press on with his mission and so he presses on, passes on from that area. In the second half of verse 27, we hear the cry. Matthew tells us that as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men approached him. We don't know anything about these men. We're not given their names, we're not given their ages, we're not given their family backgrounds, we're not given the circumstances, the the causes for their blindness. 
all Matthew tells us is that two blind men approached him. And Matthew goes on to tell us that they came to Jesus with an appeal. They follow him crying aloud. They're not polite. They're not whispering. They're not murmuring. They're not talking. They're shouting. They're screaming. They're crying out. And Matthew tells us what they cry. They cry out to Jesus to have mercy on them. They're crying out for pity. They're crying out for compassion. They're in an intolerable situation and they're crying out to Jesus to do something about it. They're saying, have mercy on us. But they do more than ask him for mercy. They also declare him to be the son of David. Now, David was the most significant king in Israel's history. Under his leadership, Israel had enjoyed a golden age. An age of plenty, an age of prosperity. But in the 900 years since David had died, Israel's fortunes had gone downhill. But all the time, the Old Testament prophets held out this great hope of a deliverer who would come. A second David. One from David's line. The prophet Isaiah spoke about him sitting on the throne of David his father and establishing a never-ending kingdom. The prophet Amos spoke about the Lord raising up the tent of David, rebuilding its ruins, rebuilding it as in the days of old. There was this great expectation, this great hope, this great anticipation of a second David, a bringer of blessing, the Messiah coming. And here we find these two blind men. And they're crying out to Jesus to have mercy on them. And as they're crying out, they're also recognizing that they believe him to be the Messiah, that second David. They believe him to be the divinely anointed and appointed king. They believe him to be the bringer of blessing. They believe him to be the long-promised Messiah who has come from God. Now, friends, as we consider this verse, we're being given a picture of our condition. A picture of our condition. The blindness of these men is a picture of the default condition of every man, every woman, every child. We don't know anything about these men. And it's more than possible that they were blind from birth. And now on this particular day, they're standing close to Jesus, they're following after Jesus, but they're unable to see him. And that is the condition that every single person is born with. They are born spiritually blind. The Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4 that the God of this world, the devil, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the glory of God, the magnificence of God, the worth of God in the face of Jesus. And he goes on and says that such people need a miracle. They need God to act. They need God to bring light to their eyes so that they're able to see the glory of God, the majesty of God, the magnificence of God, the worth of God in the face, in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I know that many of you who are here today can look back and you can see how that miracle took place in your own life. Today you're able to see Jesus as being the altogether lovely one, the chief among 10,000, the king of glory. But you can also look back and you can see that there was once a time when you were blind to this. You couldn't see this. 
You were suffering from that default condition of spiritual blindness. You sat through church services and you saw nothing attractive in Jesus. You were bored by Jesus. You were put off by Jesus. There was nothing to draw you to Jesus. But how things have changed. You love Jesus. You're attracted to Jesus. And even in the most boring sermons that I preach, you still see something of the beauty and majesty of Jesus. But at the same time, I know that there may be some of you who are here, and this is still your default condition. You still don't see Jesus as being altogether lovely. You still don't see him as being the chief among 10,000. You still don't see him as being the king of glory. You, you have heard sermons and songs about him. You have heard others speaking about him, but you have seen nothing attractive in him, nothing beautiful about him, nothing glorious about him. And my friend, if you're suffering from that condition today, if you're sitting through this service today thinking to yourself, I don't really see anything great about Jesus. I don't see anything really good about Jesus. I don't see anything glorious about Jesus. Then I want to urge you, my friend, to make the prayer of these blind men your prayer. Have mercy on me, son of David. Open my eyes, Lord, that I might see Open my eyes that I might see the glory of Jesus behind the feeble, faltering words of failure. Open my eyes that I might see the glory of Jesus behind all the songs that we're singing. Open my eyes that I might see. But the blindness of these men is also a picture of the dreadful condition that the Lord's people can find themselves in. We've already said that we don't know anything about these two men. It's possible that they were blind from birth, but it's also possible that they had suffered from some affliction, some accident that had resulted in them becoming blind. And what we need to remember is that in Jesus' day, to be blind as a result of some accident or affliction was often seen as the consequence of a specific sin. And so here you've got these two blind men Standing beside Jesus, they can't see him. And you know, sometimes the sin of a Christian will affect his or her spiritual sight so that they no longer see Jesus as being altogether lovely. They no longer see him as being chief among 10,000. They no longer see him as being the king of glory. Sometimes the sin of a Christian will affect his or her spiritual sight so that they're they're left saying with the hymn writer, where is the soul refreshing view of Jesus and his word? I know that's been my experience. I know in the times when I've dabbled with sin, and not just dabbled with sin, but fully indulged in sin, I then come to Jesus and his word, and the soul refreshing view of him just isn't there. And I listen to sermons, and the soul refreshing view isn't there. And I hear songs and the soul-refreshing view isn't there. Perhaps that's been your experience as well. And if I'm speaking to you today, then I want to urge you to make the prayer of these blind men your prayer. Have mercy on me, son of David. Lord, open my eyes that I might see. Open my eyes that I might once again see how magnificent you are. This morning I want to ask, do you see yourself in Matthew 9, 27? 
Do you see yourself? Do you see your spiritual condition in these two blind men? Do you need to cry out today, have mercy on me, son of David? Let me see. Open my eyes. Open my eyes for the first time in my life, or maybe open my eyes for the thousandth time in my life. Open my eyes. Well, we move from the cry to the cure. Look at verses 28 to 31. And here Matthew focuses on the cure that Jesus provided. Verse 28, we hear the conversation. We can see the place where Jesus goes. Look at the beginning of verse 28. Matthew tells us that he entered the house. He's kept on walking as the blind men have been approaching him and appealing to him. And he eventually comes to and enters the house. And the reason that he has for entering the house is that while he is going to heal the blind men, he does not want to do so for applause or approval from the crowd. He wants to heal them in private. We can continue by hearing the question that Jesus asks. Look again at verse 28. The blind men come up to Jesus while he's in the house and he asks them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? Now these men have been saying, have mercy on us, son of David. They want him to heal him. But you know, sometimes we can ask and ask and ask Jesus to do something and not actually believe that he is able to do anything about it. Has that ever been your experience? Maybe you've been asking and asking and asking him for something as an individual. Or maybe we've been asking and asking him for something as a congregation. But at the, at the bottom of it all, we, we don't really believe he's able to do anything about it. And so Jesus says to them, do you really believe that I am able to do this? Literally, do you believe that I have the power to do this? Do you believe that I have the authority to do this? And look at the answer that the men give. Verse 28 again. Yes, Lord. They've just referred to him as the son of David. They've just asked him to have mercy on them. And now they affirm that he is the Lord who is able to do this. He is the Lord who has the power to open their eyes. Verses 29 and 30, we see the cure. Matthew tells us what Jesus did. Verse 29, he, he touched their eyes. Don't you love this about Jesus? He could have healed these men with just a word. Be opened. But as we've seen in our studies, Jesus is the saviour who doesn't recoil from people. He doesn't hold back from people. He doesn't socially distance from people. He can't get close enough to people. He's the saviour who touches people. Touches them at their point of need. And here he touches the eyes of these two blind men. And Matthew goes on to tell us what he said. Look at verse 29. According to your faith, be it done to you. Please note, Jesus isn't saying in proportion to the size of your faith or the quality of your faith, may this healing be done for you. He is not saying that. He is simply saying, according to your faith, because you have faith, even if it is faith the size of a mustard seed, because you have faith, may this healing be done to you. And Matthew tells us what happened. Look at verse 30. Their eyes were opened. As we've gone through Matthew chapters 8 and 9, we have seen the immediate, instantaneous way in which Jesus heals people. The way in which he cures men and women. When there's, when there's a leper, he's able to cure that person in an instant. When there's a fever, he's able to heal that person in an instant. There, there's no long recovery. There's no long delay between the cure and the healing. 
It's instantaneous. I still am spluttering away a wee bit. I'm doing my best not to cough before, in case any of you start panicking. And I, I think Robert's probably the same. Donald might be the same. In fact, just avoid Robert, Donald and I today. No, don't, I shouldn't say that. But there's a, there's a recovery process when you've not been well. But there's no recovery process when it comes to Jesus. The cure is instantaneous. Jesus touches the eyes of the blind men. He speaks to them. And their eyes are opened. And then in verses 30 and 31, we come to the conclusion of the narrative. In verse 30, we hear the directive of Jesus. He sternly warns the two men. This is a strong term. He's, he's speaking fiercely to them, speaking forcibly to them. It is almost a rebuke. Jesus is leaving these men in no doubt about what he wants them to know. And he sternly warns them to see that no one knows about it. Jesus knows that mass hysteria will break out if word gets out that he has opened the eyes of the blind. And he doesn't want this. He doesn't want to be distracted or diverted from his mission of saving his people from their sins. And so he clearly, categorically, comprehensively tells these two men to keep quiet about what had happened to them. But look at verse 31. We see the formerly blind men responding to the directive of Jesus with disobedience. They went away. And as they go away, they spread his fame through all the district. They're unable to keep quiet about what has happened to them. They tell everyone about whom they have encountered. And they tell everyone about the healing that they have experienced. They just can't keep quiet. Now friends, as we consider these verses, we're being given a clear picture of who Jesus is. We've already seen that the blind men believed him to be the Messiah. They saw him as the son of David. They saw him as the fulfillment of the ancient promises spoken by the prophets. They saw him as the long-awaited bringer of blessing who would usher in a new exodus, days when the eyes of the blind would be opened, according to Isaiah 35. They believe him to be the Messiah, but he is more than the Messiah. He is God. The Old Testament is clear in saying that God is the one who can open the eyes of the blind. That is the point that is emphasized in Psalm 146, where the psalmist says, The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. And now we find Jesus opening the eyes of two blind men, just after he has raised a girl from the dead. Matthew... Matthew is presenting evidence upon evidence upon evidence that this Jesus, this great subject of his work, is the God-man. He is more than a healer. He is more than a teacher. He is more than a prophet. He is more than the Messiah. He is God. He is the one who can open the eyes of the blind. But as we consider these verses, we're not just being given a clear picture of who Jesus is, we're also being given a clear caution concerning our obedience to this Jesus. Because look at the response of these two blind men. Jesus sternly warns them not to let anyone know about what had happened to them, and they go out, and within a matter of minutes, they're spreading his fame through the whole district. Now, friends, this is solemn. 
This is serious. These men have just called Jesus Lord. They've just been cured by him. Had their eyes opened. And now, within a matter of minutes, they're disobeying his commands. Now, we might say, well, they're being evangelistic. We might say, well, they're emotional. We might say, well, they're enthusiastic. We might say, well, they're, they're excited. We might say all these things. But what are they doing? They're denying and defying the Lordship of Jesus. They're disobeying him. It, it might even be something very good that they are doing, but they are still disobeying him. And that is a very clear lesson and caution to ourselves. If we confess that Jesus is Lord and believe him to be our Lord, then we must obey his words. We must obey his commands. We must obey his directives. Steve Lawson writes, For all true followers of Christ, obedience is never peripheral. At the heart of what it means to be a disciple of our Lord is living in loving devotion to God. But if such love is real, the acid test is obedience. Jesus maintained, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Genuine love for Christ will always manifest itself in obedience. This does not mean that a Christian can ascend to sinless perfection. This will never be realized this side of glory. Neither does it imply that a believer will never disobey God again. Isolated acts of disobedience will still occur. But the new birth does give a new heart that desires to obey the word. Simply put, true faith is obedient faith. Our obedience of faith is not the grounds upon which God declares us righteous. But it does reveal our faith to be genuine. The Lordship of Christ, friends, requires loyal obedience Loving obedience. Loyal, loving, total obedience from his people. Nothing less. Nothing less. So as we close, let me ask, is your life, is my life giving evidence that we have a living faith? Not, not an inherited faith that we got from our parents. Not an intellectual faith that we got from our books. But a living faith that has surrendered and submitted to the authority, the sovereignty, the lordship of Jesus. A living faith that is seen in our obedience to his word. That is what Matthew is drawing our attention to. It is good to confess our faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. But our profession of allegiance, our professions of faith, must be accompanied by an obedience that proves, that shows that he is our Lord. Let's pray.